Hello and welcome to the Hacking State Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. With me today is Isaac Simpson, otherwise known as Disgraced Propagandist. Uh, he runs the Carousel Podcast and Substack, as well as Will the Agency, which is a dissident marketing agency. Will, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm sorry, Isaac. No, it's all good. It's, people say that. I'm sure yeah. that happens a lot. <laughs> Well, um, and what also happens a lot is everybody says Will the Agency because mm -hmm. that's the website and that's yeah. like the handle, but it's actually just it, Will. It's just Will. Make yeah, it. Yeah, but you need I to have that. Uh, the yeah. the the Ken meme where or no wait what is it the it's not the Ken meme. Well, no, the Ken meme is it's just Beach, right? My job is just Beach, but there's also the uh, the like um, the the meme from the the social network where it's like just make it Will. It's cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly exactly so those are two uh two possible meme formats for addressing this uh addressing common confusion right yeah yeah um so anyway uh you are um you run a very interesting podcast uh in substack called the carousel um where you've had a lot of very prominent guests a lot of big twitter personalities especially um and you also have of course will uh, your own uh, your own marketing agency, which is a lot of doing a lot of interesting things. Um, and I know that you have a, a pretty lengthy marketing background. So I was just sort of wondering, um, before we get into each of those projects specifically, um, what was your journey like to getting here? How did you end up here? Um, what were some problems with the industry that you noticed? Yeah, totally. Well, you know, I was always... Um somewhat of an outsider to the marketing world. I did reach, you know, certain heights in the marketing world that were, gave me enough of a sense to understand what was going on to get a feel for the whole industry. I'm a very sensitive person and I'm, I'm very perceptive. So um, I only needed to really experience like not that much of it to understand what it was like. I probably in total spent in terms of like actual years working in mainstream marketing, I spent probably five, probably five total, maybe six. Mm. And of that, I was really only at the seeing the top, you know, because you you really need to see the top of anything in order to really get it, I think. So I only actually like, I mean, I was a bottom, you know, I was in total schmuck jobs for a lot of it. I was at schmuck agencies for a lot of it. Hmm. Um, I only really experienced the top for a very small percentage of that. But what you started seeing in, in 2014, and I always mark the big change to 2014, 2013, 2014, you started to see what we call the longhouse uh, completely taking over marketing and way more so marketing than any other industry because mm -hmm. marketing is extremely female. It's an extremely female, not only is it extremely female, it's also like, um, it's not like a, something like nursing, which is a female industry uh Marketing is soft skills. So there's not direct accountability. You know, there's not, there's no like immediate, like right or wrong, you know? Mm. 
So you saw this marketing. I think the reason I saw things maybe a little bit earlier than a lot of people is because I happened to be in marketing and being in marketing, you were seeing this new HR centric sort of way of working, this managerial class, mm -hmm. you were seeing it rise and you were seeing the way that it worked. And I was realizing like, oh, wow, this is going to destroy everything. This is going to literally destroy anything good that could ever possibly be created because you can't make something good in this environment. It is literally impossible. You can nothing good can come out of this mm -hmm. uh, environment. And so that started becoming clear to me. And I, and I happened to work, you know, one of the times I was at the top was I was seeing um, I worked at basically at the time, the best ad agency in the world, which was this place called 72 and sunny. And, um, I was there in 2014. So it was the perfect timing because I could see, I could very much see this, uh, change occurring, uh, in real time. Mm. I don't know if that answers the question. Well, I mean, that gives me a number of directions to go in. Um, one thing I wanted to just ask as a clarifying question for the sake of the listeners, just because as much as I'd like to believe that my entire audience are, you know, in the know um, on the Twitter lingo, uh, what what exactly do you mean by the longhouse? Because there are different interpretations of it. Um, and so could you just explain that briefly for those listening who may not so know? So the longhouse refers to, and you know, whether or not it's the actual accurate referral, it doesn't matter. What the, the longhouse, the term refers to um, early civilizations that where everybody essentially lived in one giant house. And that, the, the at least in the mimetic meaning of it, that refers to a matriarchy, basically, or a, or a gynocracy in which the wives of the sort of alpha, like the, 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 the different wives of the main guy, run the entire culture because you're all living in this one house together. Like if, you, if you've seen the movie The Beach, that's a perfect longhouse example. And, and when you get in environments like this, it becomes kind of a panopticon you're being judged all the time by your behavior versus what you're producing. Mm. So it, it kind of reduces everything into this very flat structure where you're being constantly monitored by women. You're being constantly evaluated based on your, uh, the appropriateness of your behavior. And um, my belief is that a workplace becomes a longhouse when you reach a certain amount of female authority. When you cross a certain like zero barrier, everything in that environment switches over. Yeah. To it stops being about the product and it starts being about the environment, which by the way is not necessarily bad. You know, it's it, like it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's mm -hmm. like an environment that is uh, conscious of itself is can be a great environment. It can be, re you know, relaxed. People can treat each other well. Um, it can be non-abusive. You know, th there's a lot of positive things about it. But for a certain kind of man with certain types of goals, um, 
who doesn't really give a shit about behavior and instead wants to strive towards a, you know, a goal together. Mm. It's a absolutely killer. You, you cannot survive in that environment. And I'll yeah. just give you uh, one example. So I worked at a pharma marketing agency, a very good one, uh, at least in terms of reputation, uh, you know, maybe good, maybe not very good. And Pharma marketing in particularly is ultra female dominated because you have health, which is female dominated and pharma, which are both, uh, are, sorry, and marketing. So those two together, I'm talking about this place was like, my bosses were all women, like a hundred percent, all the yeah. way up the line. You know, like we're talking about like 20 women were all my bosses. Everybody I worked with was a woman almost. There was a few guys kind of sitting around still, but, and you know, I quite literally, I'm not exaggerating. I'm not saying this to like make myself sound cool. I'm saying this because this actually happened. I actually brought in $1.8 million to this company simply by up like selling some ideas to this, this client that they didn't even want to buy. Right. And that was, you know, my, I was the creative director. So it was my job to like, you know, have ideas, sell them in, create them, all the shit. I did this in my first year there no one else had ever done this in the entire company. I'm, you know, I, I get celebrated. I'm talked about in the, Oh, be, everybody needs to be more like Isaac, you mm. know, try and like structure your things like, like him, you know, was totally creating all this great stuff. I got like a harsh talking to every Friday <laughs> by my, these bosses, they would call me in Friday would come around and I, I would think, Oh, they're going to, they're going to like promote me. They're going to give me more money. And, you know, I'm making not that much money. Like yeah. I'm doing okay. But for, to bring in $1.8 million, you would think I run a company now. If somebody brought in $1.8 million, you better believe they would see a big fucking chunk of that. And they would never, I would be just, I would be bowing at their feet. You know what I mean? I would just say, I would give them anything they wanted. And they would fucking just shit on me. Every Friday, they would they would just say, you know, Christine was really offended by the way that you told her you didn't like her ideas. And, you know, you really need to be more sensitive about yeah. the way you respond when somebody is sharing something with you. I would just get these fucking talking tos every Friday. And at a certain point, I was just like, I just quit. I literally yeah. quit like on the spot. Like, the, yeah, I was way just like, fuck this. The way that I think about it is sort of what happens with the long, I think you're absolutely right that there's a certain like threshold uh, that once it's crossed over um, and it doesn't necessarily, yeah, it is correct that it's the threshold is best measured by the level of female authority, not necessarily even the sex ratio of a given company. Yeah, um, absolutely. But let me just be, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I just want to be really clear before everybody hates me on this podcast. It's very obvious if you look around that mm -hmm. women are talented at creation. They can make some of the best designers I've worked with are women. Some of the it's I'm yeah, not yeah. at all saying women are not capable or mm -hmm. I'm not saying that they're bad to work with. I'm not saying that I'm saying when the authority structure reaches a certain zero barrier, that is the longhouse. Sorry, yeah. Continue, well, continue. well, no. So what I was going to say, though, is that I think like, again, this is like an important thing to not have be like misunderstood yeah. is that 
one of the fundamental things that changes is the dynamic of male, like intra-male versus intra-female competition. Yeah. And an intra-female competition uh, runs itself by different rules than intra-male yeah. competition. And that's, I think, fundamentally what a lot of the tension here is and why a lot of men don't feel comfortable when organizations reach this certain point. Because the type of male competition that men are used to and that men are better at doing amongst each other is uh, is ostentatious, involves a lot of disagreement and disagreeability, and really involves a kind of uh, status game where the person who produces the best results basically uh, more or less is in charge. And, you know, there's obviously... It's not all just brutal competition. There's obviously a lot of cooperation involved as well and, you know, punishment for defectors and so forth. But female competition tends to be a lot more covert. Uh, it involves a lot more gossip, a lot more um, behind the scenes activities and a lot more concern for social cohesion, which is not the way that male competition is primarily done. And I think that's the thing that really bothers a lot of people. And depending on what your organization's mission is, can be either detrimental or not, right? Like I, I could imagine there are some certain, there are definitely some female organizations and female organizational activities where the female mode of competition being primary works for the goal of that organization. But you can't take an organization that's set up for male competition, turn yes. it into yes, a landscape yes. for females primarily com primary competitive dynamic and then yeah. expect it to keep working. Yes, I couldn't. That was extremely well put. I, I could not have put that better myself. And and uh, right. It's like you're just trying to make one into the other thing, you know, and it's like that. It's It just doesn't really work that way. You know, I, I think that's exactly right. So, OK, so you were in the marketing field. You sort of saw this coming from miles away because of your own personal experiences and changes that were happening in the industry. Uh, how did you go from there to, did you begin the carousel first or did you begin Will first? So, okay. Um, I've basically been doing the same thing more or less for 11 years or 12 years even, which is writing shit on the internet and doing advertising of different types. Like those are the two streams of my life. I've been doing that as a professional person, even though I went to law school, I passed the bar. I never really practiced law. I pretty much have been like blogging and slash podcasting and doing branding for 12 years, just in various different ways. So the carousel is just the latest version of my blog slash podcast. It has had many iterations before mm. that. Um, so the carousel itself has been around for about a year. But me as a blogger, you know, I wrote for Vice, I wrote for LA Weekly, like me as a writer and a thinker or like a whatever, and I, I hate, I'm not a thinker, but like as a reporter or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, that's been around for a while. Um, in terms of Will, my agency, that's been around for three years, but there was a two-year intermission. So really, uh, because I went back into the mainstream marketing world for two years, so Will has really only been around for a, about a year and the carousel's only been around for about a year. The reason for that is because about a year ago, I guess now we're already in August. So this was really like last April. So a little over a year. I decided once and for all, I am never going back to the mainstream. Mm. 
So I said to myself, I'm not going back to work for a mainstream agency ever. I'm never going to do it. Mm. And I'm not going to go, uh, I'm not going to, um, hide my opinions. Right. So I am not, I'm not going to like delete stuff. I'm not going to not say I'm who I am. I'm not going to like pretend I'm, you know, yeah, not uh right wing. You know what I'm saying? I, so like, I basically, you know, made that decision, um, you know, a little over a year ago. So that, that the will, like will and the carousel were basically the final forms, you know, they were like, okay, this yeah. is what I'm doing, you know, for the rest of it. Yeah. Coming out of your chrysalis. <laughs> basically. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Well, I was hoping that would lead me, that question would lead me into some sort of uh definite sequence for talking about one and then the other, but since they happened at the same time, <laughs> roughly, uh, I will just start by going into the carousel. Okay. Um, so uh, I mean, funnily enough, I made a similar decision. Uh, I went into software engineering. I killed my last podcast because I thought I couldn't make it whatever as an engineer if I had too much of an online presence. I even had like, I even turned my Twitter account pseudonymous for a while. And then after about a year of doing that, I was like, I was just tired of it. And I was like, I'm just going to go back to uh, like, I'm just going to self docs and go back to doing my stuff uh, under my own name and everything under my own name. Because um, I know that, look, I have Anon friends who disagree with me on this, or maybe they have, maybe they're stronger than me. I don't know what it is, but um, I feel like when you get used to hiding, it really deranges you. Yeah. And so you should not, you should try not to do that unless you absolutely have to. And a lot of people think that they are going to not be economically viable, basically, if they do that, even though in the US, we have very few actual legal consequences for most of our speech. Um, but I found that um, if you want to like be able to live with yourself, <laughs> it's like hiding is not a good way to live. Um, and so you better have a good reason for it. All right. So Please. Carousel, um, you've actually interviewed a lot of a lot of uh, big Twitter personalities on the on on the carousel, anons and non-anons alike. Um, a lot of some of the same people that I used to talk to, some of the people that I'm still talking to now. Um, what was the impetus for the carousel? And um, maybe we can get a little bit into the the metaphor, which is posted on the about page of the carousel from Mad Men. Right, right. Well, what do you mean the impetus, though? Like, what what do you mean by that? Well, so, I mean, the carousel is, is, uh, basically, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, kind of, um, it's exploring the world through modern propaganda. Right. Oh, yeah. So, uh, what does that mean exactly? Um, it's interesting that you have the carousel, which is sort of like this kind of pseudo propagandistic arm and then will, which is marketing. But yeah. for people that are familiar with the history of marketing, marketing comes out of the field of propaganda, right? Yeah. Edward Bernays and all of that. So um, I guess to make the question more pointed, why why the carousel metaphor? So the carousel is this famous scene in Mad Men. For those listening, you can go look at the Substack and watch the video if you're not familiar, um, where basically um, they're giving this presentation uh, I believe it's on like a Kodak camera or something like that. And it's not, it's not a camera. It's the, 
It's the wheel that you do a slide presentation. Oh, 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 it's the actual slide wheel. Okay. Yeah, I it's was, the slide wheel. I yeah. was confused. Um and uh and, and Don Draper uh, giving this presentation very smoothly says it's not called the wheel, it's called the carousel. It lets yeah. us travel the way a child travels around and around and back home again to a place where we know we are loved. And it's this very sentimental scene. And it even like moved me a little bit when I was watching it. Um, <laughs> and I just wanted to ask, like, why, why did you choose that scene and why that metaphor for, uh, for the Substack? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so obviously it's a fucking fantastic scene and you know, you, you, it really is effective. And um, so like, on the one hand, it's simply because it shows the power of branding. You know, it shows that what's great about that show, and I think, you know, what's great about advertising in general, and something that has been totally forgotten, especially by our guys, is that branding and marketing can be very beautiful. You know, it, it can be very meaningful and it really can just as much as any other kind of art, uh, bring happiness, change things for the better, you know, enforce certain values. Um, it's an extremely powerful thing, right? And done well, it can be a good thing. It can actually be a force for good. Like it can actually mean something, you know, it can actually uh, mean something real. And I think that that's what that show does such an amazing job of is it's, it's not just about selling something, you know, like when you're making a billboard, you're not just selling something. You're literally creating a man-made tree, basically. You know I mean? You, you are building your environment. You're mm. building the beauty of the place around you. And, um, so I think that that's, uh, why I partially why I called it that. Secondly, uh, I'm basically at my in my heart of hearts a travel writer. You know, I mean, like that's what I started as for Vice. That was, you know, I'm I read all creative nonfiction. Like, so the carousel um, is like a little bit of a reference just to exploration. You know, you're kind of going around. Mm. Um, that's what the exploring the world through modern propaganda is. Also, it's like. You know how, um, you know how like you develop your interests and you think when you're younger that the things you're into, everybody is into, like you think that everybody, everybody sees the things that I see. Right. Hmm. And then as you get older, you realize like, oh, other people don't actually like, they don't notice the sh things that I notice because I have certain interests. Right. So I'm like more attuned to certain things. I'm like extremely attuned to signals of culture. So like billboards, bumper stickers, uh, you know, the piece that I got really big for that was, I was written about in Vanity Fair for was about going to Montana. And the mm. way I, I uh, described that piece was an analysis of the signs of propaganda in Montana. So that's like the songs that are on the radio. Mm. You know, the advertisements that you're seeing places, people's bumper stickers, as I said, you know, the way that brands are designed in a certain town. Oh, 
you know, the black rifle coffee sign on mm. the coffee shop, you know, yeah. I, I'm hyper attuned to those things. So the carousel was like a little, a little bit of like a recognition of exploring things through that lens of like signs and symbols. Mm. Um, I don't want to, signs and symbols. I, I don't want to say that because a lot of times it's like, then people think I'm going to be talking about the, you know, esoteric meaning of, of the, this, you know, like, uh, you're going to start quoting some... Derrida. <laughs> right. Exactly. Which I, I'm not like that at all. So signs and symbols. Mm. So that's why I say brands, because that's really like more what I'm attuned to. And then finally, last reason, uh, I'm a huge Towns Van Zandt song and Towns has a song called Miss Carousel that is fucking sick. And it's about like, it's about like, uh, it's about the longhouse basically, actually in, mm. in its own way. So. Okay. And I guess one other thing I wanted to ask about the the metaphor and the scene is sort of this um this uh little bit he says in the monologue about nostalgia, right? Where he describes he describes nostalgia as an emotion that has a kind of uh, ache to it. Yeah, right. right yeah. He gives the etymology of the word and he says that it actually has to do with like a kind of longing or like an a, a, an open wound. Um and it seems to me as if there's an element of this uh, of reverence for nostalgia, both in the project of the carousel, as well as in work that Will is doing, right? Um, you said earlier that you wanted to remind people that branding could be beautiful. And so this is a callback of sorts to a prior time of marketing Um so is Mad Men, of course, um, being an anachronistic kind of show. Um, so when you say, when you talk about, when he talks about returning home, are you also playing a lot into this idea of nostalgia? Um, and maybe not nostalgia as some sort of kitsch thing, but nostalgia as a force for renewal, as a kind of remembering important things that we might have forgotten. Um, because we've been moving so fast. Um, this question isn't coming out very articulate. No, no, no. I think it's it's a good question. I I just shy away from indulging in nostalgia porn, right? Because it's like like um, mainstream culture has this really funny relationship with nostalgia now, where everything's like only 90 kids will remember, you know what I mean? Like, mm. uh, and it's like a picture of Kit Kat bars or, you know, like whatever, <laughs> Go like, yeah, you know, it's like blockbuster video. Oh my God. Mm. You know, we have a very weird, like masturbatory relationship with nostalgia right now. Um, where it's like, we're, it's like, we have that feeling of that ache of this memory. And we're just like, hammering on the, that feeling, you know, because people know it's effective, you know, like branding people like a uh, McDonald's just did this thing with grimace that yeah. was, uh, and so I will say the only good agency that still makes good stuff is, uh, the best agency ever, which is called Wyden Kennedy. Wyden Kennedy did just do it. They, they're the Nike agency. They're the best ad agency ever, and um, they still have enough good people hanging on that they still have good ideas, even for today's world. They're the only ones. Everybody else sucks. That was their idea. 
And it was entirely nostalgia based. It was entirely based on this memory of Grimace, this McDonald's character that most of the people posting about it didn't even have. Right. You know what I mean? Like they didn't even know who fucking Grimace was, but mm. there, there's still some feeling of, it's not like Grimace was a new character, right? If they'd introduced a new character, it wouldn't have worked. They had to tie in this nostalgia so that people felt like they were remembering this thing that, that when they were a really little kid and they went to that McDonald's and they saw that Grimace on the wall, they were like just hammering that neurotransmitter, you know, it's like very not masturbatory. But it was effective. So and it was and it was done in a sort of genius way. Very, very well done. So I appreciate that. But I don't want my, you know, you get into these pitches inside these agencies. So much of it is just nostalgia, milking nostalgia. So I, that's why I'm, I'm like balk at that a little bit. But I still think that you raise some good points of like, I mean, the carousel is naturally nostalgic. Mad Men is naturally nostalgic. And here I am talking about, you know, the heyday of great American marketing, which is definitely nostalgic. So, you're, you know, you're right. Yeah, well, I mean, <clears throat> I think maybe there's a distinction to be made between like mining nostalgia as like a cheap um a cheap way to just like squeeze a little bit more juice out of it um out of like work that was done prior that was great uh and mining nostalgia because it can actually bring something new again either undiscovered or forgotten about right um from our past right um yeah so yeah. for example i guess I'll, I'll i'll transition into will now um the will will the agency uh, you guys do a lot of different things. I'm going to get into some of the brands that you're working with right now um, momentarily. But one of the things that you do just as a general, like, you know, on your social media marketing is uh, you, you, you post great ads from the past, right? Like, you know, you posted like an old Calvin Klein ad the other day, you know, these are ads with, you know, good lighting and good photography and beautiful models and so forth. And um, in a way, that's also nostalgic as well. But it's also reminding people like, hey, um, your ads don't have to be like ugly, they don't have to be like abhorrent to uh, human sensibilities, or to our like aesthetics. Um, they could actually be beautiful, they could actually be aspirational. Um, so what is um, how, how do you think about like, just aesthetics in general and what are the aesthetics or primary aesthetic influences of will well so the the twitter is actually not run by me so i should be cl clear about that i work with a lot of frogs i work with a lot of guys who are way better at twitter than i am and mm. uh, a few of them run that account because they are interested in it and yeah they like finding old ads that are you know we all agree are aesthetically beautiful um so, you know, I, that, I, that's not all my vision, you know, I, I, and in general, the thing I'll say about Will, very little of it is my vision. I, I try to let the creatives who I direct really bring their ideas to the table. I mean, that the, the Twitter blue spec ad that got like 300,000 views or whatever, I had the the original concept that I had was completely different from from like what that ended up being because mm -hmm. the guy who made it, Wide Dog, who's a fantastic creative, 
he had all his ideas. And my job then is to step aside. You know, I think one of the worst things the the longhouse does or the longhouse or a megalomaniacal hype dad, right. Who's yeah. kind of the, the opposite. They are going to kill everything with critiques. You know, they're going to, they're going to destroy things like bit by bit by bit, you know, whereas instead of trusting the creative to like come forth the way that it it needs to come forth. Like I tend to believe every campaign is like, it's already there. You just have to kind of coax it forward without trying too hard. You know, if you, if you're trying so hard, that's when everything dies, you know, you nothing good can come out of every great story of every great ad ever it did none of them. It was always some, they stumbled into it. You know, it's like science, right? It's mm. like in science, whenever they're trying to do it, they never get it. And then they stumble into it somehow. And you just got to be smart enough to understand, Oh, that's, that's what we should do. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the vision for well that I have is I'm, I'm a writer. I'm a concept guy. You know, I, I have good visual taste. I can't make any of that shit myself at all. You know, I mean, like, it's just, it's really just being a curator and taking bits and pieces and saying like, that's cool. That's cool. You know, like, what do I like? Um, yeah. I mean, in terms of like this thing about you're saying, like bringing the beauty of the past, I mean, that's absolutely what we stand for is, is, um, complete reaction against the insistence upon ugliness that these completely ridiculous mainstream agencies have decided is their job. I mean, there's nothing. I say this to everybody. I came along at the exact perfect time because there is nothing more insane than woke, woke mainstream advertising. It's so crazy. <laughs> like if you actually think about it, it yeah. is the most insane thing. Like people will look back on it. And just be like, this is the most absurd thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Like communist propaganda, kind of crazy. Woke propaganda, it's the fucking most insane thing, you know, like ever. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. But yeah. Well, it, it's so weird. It's, it's it's like you look at it and you're like, who who actually wants this? Like, no, it's, and no, yeah. It's it becomes hard wild. to just not assume that it's some sort of conspiracy to just demoralize exactly. us. <laughs> exactly. It's hard to imagine another motive, but I guess some people are uh, really enwrapped in these signs and symbols. And so for them, it just becomes a very uh, almost like hallucinatory world of uh, of signaling right to themselves and to each other. Yeah, well, I mean, the need. explanation is it. it's I still don't know what the explanation is. I mean, we still don't you know, I've done work to try and understand it. Um you know, not as much as I should have, like, of course, if I was getting paid to write a book about it, then I'd be able to actually like really interrogate it. But if anyone wants to give of, Isaac a book deal. Yeah. The, the, why, why did woke marketing happen? It's really like the most fascinating topic ever, but I, we still don't know, you know I mean? Like I, sometimes I still think the answer is Satan. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> Just like the demiurge. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I don't know. It's, it's still really weird that any human being would think that that's a good idea, but yeah, I don't know. Uh, what's a hype dad. So a hype dad, the first piece I had that went viral 
was about hype dads. So hype dads was actually a term coined by my friend, uh, Sean Monahan, who's an advertising genius. And he's the guy who came up with the vibe shift. He originally uh, did Normcore. We hang out here. He's, he's great. And he had very loosely in some other article, actually, I think it was the vibe shift article. Uh, he had mentioned this concept of a hype dad and he just very loosely defined it. It was just a little blurb. So I wrote a more expansive piece about the hype dad and everybody immediately went crazy for this piece because it was identifying a certain type of guy that you see in the creative industries all the time. Mm. And this guy is very out of touch. He's like mid fifties tall. He wears hipster glasses. He's good looking. He's always got back problems for some reason. <laughs> like he's always he's always like got all kinds of expensive gear because he's making a ton of money, but he his like body is fucked up, and he's super progressive. He like wears sneakers and listens listens to Kendrick Lamar. Yeah, and he's the creative director, right? Or he's the executive creative director. He's some fucking white schmuck who yeah. back in the day would have been. Don Draper, right? That that would have been Don Draper 50 years ago, except now he, it's all flipped. It's all reversed. Like now he's he acts like a child, basically. You know, like like he he's trying to be 20 years old instead of the 20-year-olds trying to be him. It's it's yeah. all flipped on its head. Mm. And he's constantly apologizing, you know, he's constantly uh, you know. So anyway, th it's this anybody who's worked in the creative industries has run into this exact guy. So that's what all the feedback I got was people immediately messaging me and being like, Oh my God, I fucking, I so have work with a hype dad. I know this exact guy you're talking about. And uh, they're very obnoxious because they're ultra competitive. So they're, they're these people, they're like, they, they're, and I say this in the piece, they're very political. You know, they're, they're like social climbers. They're always trying to find their way up up the hierarchy kind of like in this gross way type of people. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's what a hype dad is basically. And they are, um, okay. Interesting. So they're, I mean, I, I sort of think about this myself. So like, I'm not that old, uh, I'm turning 30 pretty soon. And, uh, I always like, I, I don't know. I, I'm sure the zoomers feel this much more strongly, but especially in like, woke this is my experience in like universities mostly but also in like the woke parts of business world um there's a certain kind of like established guy who again is like maybe he's a hype dad but i, I don't know if it applies only to the creative industries because i've seen similar types in like tech and in academia who is like yeah in his 50s has had a lot of advantages in life um you know, I mean, I'm not against having advantages. Advantages are good if you have them. You should take advantage of them and you should use them to do good things. But um, then takes that position that he's basically been gifted and uses it to try to basically crush the younger men who are like himself, who are trying to come up, right? And often based on their immutable characteristics, um, which are the same as his. But because yeah, he's already right, gotten right. this position, he doesn't care. So yeah, it's just pulling yeah, the ladder yeah. up, right? Yep, and he's pulling the ladder up. Exactly. That's what makes these guys really despicable, in yeah. my opinion. Yeah, very well put. That's exactly right. And the thing is, it's not even like they're 
it's just gross, right? It's just like people don't like seeing people like that. You know, like they don't they don't like people who act that way. Mm-hmm. You know, in the movie, a guy who pulls up the ladder, nobody likes that guy. You know what I mean? So nobody likes these fucking hype dads. They think people like them because they're signaling what they're supposed to signal all the time. But in a very core sense, nobody actually likes these dudes. And they'll throw them under the bus the second they have the chance. It's just they've gotten into these positions you know, and they're kind of clinging on to them, but they're, they're, you know, all these people in 10 years will be completely like gone. You know, there's mm. no, they're clinging on barely, yeah. you know, but, but th- th- their whole world is collapsing. So let's get into some of the work that you're doing more deeply uh, with sure. Will. So Will has a number of brands that you've promoted uh, that, appear to be making the rounds and there's a lot of like at least from what i can tell and it's very opaque to me uh guerrilla marketing going on and um you know things going on with influencers and events and so forth one of the most prominent brands that's gotten a lot of attention recently that you're involved with is hestia hestia tobacco hestia cigarettes um can you talk to me a little bit about sort of the characteristics of these brands you were quoted I believe it was in a New York Times piece um, as calling them anti-synthetic capitalist brands. Um, And that's something you said in Zero Hedge originally, but then was quoted later on in the New York Times. So what's going on with these brands? Um, How are they involved with Will? And what do you think is the secret to the hype? So here's what's so funny. I'll I'll tell I'll reveal like a little bit of secret about publicity right now that I no one ever talks about this. So it's so incredible that no one knows about this stuff. That's why it's just so wild. Like so 85% of the shit that you see in the newspaper is paid to be there. 85. It's really funny. I nobody paid to get Hestia in the New York Times. So let me just be clear clear about that. Magdalene, who wrote that article, is a legitimate journalist. She is not paid at all. So she is one of the rare few that actually writes about culture in such a way that is not paid. But that quote that I have in there actually comes from a client that I have that is not Hestia <laughs> that I wrote for a friend of mine in Zero Hedge, just kind of randomly, like I can't go into any real details here. I didn't pay, let me just be clear, did not pay Zero Hedge either. Mm. But uh, that quote, anti-synthetic brands, that's actually me trying to get something about another client noticed somewhere else, right? So it's hilarious that that's the thing that they picked up on because that actually deals with an entirely different client. Uh, and that's what they're like talking about Hestia because I mentioned Hestia in that same Zero Hedge article. All this aside, um, it was just a very funny conglomeration of things of why that came to be. But I truly do believe, I very, very much believe that we are seeing a cultural reaction against globalism. What is globalism defined by? It's defined by processed goods made at massive scale by huge machines uh, 
with lowest bitter ingredients. So, you know, cigarettes, uh, you know, masa chips is a client of mine. Yes. They make beef tallow chips, right? Mm. Instead of seed oils. There's not a better metaphor for globalist like living than seed oils. It's the, you will, you will eat the bugs. We will yeah. make the cheapest possible food and we'll sell it at the highest possible margin and you will buy it because it's sustainable, which in quotation marks, which is really means because it's cheap for us to produce. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I would say that all the insane thing, and I didn't try to do this. This just happened. All my clients in some way or another, and this actually includes Urbit too, all of them in some way or another are fighting against this global homogenous, lowest bitter industrialized supply chain. And they're fighting it not by doing what Black Rifle Coffee does or doing what these BS conservative brands do. They're doing it by changing the ingredients themselves. They're doing it by literally making a better product. So in a way, what we're seeing, I, I actually prefer to call it the new natural versus anti-synthetic. I think the new natural, what we're seeing is like the natural food movement, the whole foods movement that happened in the 60s that was left-coded, that mm -hmm. was like left-wing, we are the world, Ben and Jerry's, right? That was saying, come buy our shitty product and then we'll give some money to the starving you know, children. This is the polar opposite. It's saying, come buy our more expensive product but it's made with good ingredients, right? It's made with good natural shit. And by buying that, you're doing more for the world and yourself yeah. than anything else you could do because you're building a supply chain of like beauty and goodness and health. Uh, and you're, you know, you're voting with your wallet. So I think that um, that's what anti-synthetic means in that context. And absolutely Hestia, um, is one of those. And because they make the highest, it's the highest quality tobacco. They're rolling out a thing with uh, the only biodegradable filters in existence. So there are biodegradable cigarette filters. They just don't use them because the, of course it's not cheap. Yeah. So Hestia, it, they don't have them in the cigarettes yet, but they're about to. Um, yeah. The word that's coming to my mind when I think about these, these brands and the way you're describing them is wholesome, right? There's a kind of wholesomeness making the world yeah. whole, reducing the negative externalities, right, that are built into this sort of large globalist system um, by just, yeah. Uh, and yeah, it is going to cost more, like, because the cost is built in, right? Like, that's how you get rid of the negative externalities, you internalize them. Um, totally. And it's like, wouldn't we rather just simply spend, you know, eat, like, yeah, wouldn't we rather just prize the things we're eating more and eat less of them? Hmm. You know, God forbid, God forbid we ate less, you know, versus shoving, you know, shoveling fucking seed oils into our face all day, you know, which is what they want us to do, by the way. Yeah. You know, that's that's what they want us to do. Yeah. I mean, it was uh, it was one of those interesting things where um, you, you, you and the brands that are associated with you were just sort of like haunting my life uh, in a good way, <laughs> in a good way where like I would log on to Twitter and I would see them and then I would like go to a random party 
and you know that you were at a cool party because there'd be like a bag of massa chips on the counter and someone smoking <laughs> hestias and you'd be like okay all right this is the place to be um because yeah. these people know what's going on um yeah. but a lot of people don't uh is there a kind of uh anti-scale built into this uh sort of framework or do you think that there is a possibility for scale or is scale in tension with the values that are prioritized um well that's you what's can't so speak cool for the brands themselves but well i mean that's what's so cool about cigarettes and chips is mm. that scale's there i mean you you got the scale it's you know and that and that's uh yeah, you have those are scalable products. And that's why I love the guys who founded all these so much because they're just so smart. You know, I didn't have these ideas. I just found these brands. You know, I I they, I didn't have the idea to do it. Um I just realized when I saw them like, "Oh, that's like what we should be doing." Um so I think the best of these products, another one is Van Man. He's he's great. Um they are building things that are scalable. You know, they're not, they're not, you know, the hipster movement was more about, you know, making something that's not scalable at all, you know, yeah. whereas all of these things are um, sort of designed to be scalable solutions. Mm. So they're sort of smarter. They're figuring out that you can get to scale without sacrificing quality. Well, and I also think they're opportunists, like any good capitalist, they're, they're just seeing, you know, every beer is basically the same thing. Every cigarette is basically the same thing. They're all owned by the same two, you know, companies. They have the same stuff in them. Um, and people like variety, you know, people like something different. They always do. And it just happens. So happens that what's different now is, uh, you know, the, the globalist regime hates this because they want to trick everybody into thinking you know uh that plastering a different logo on top of the exact same product is gonna convince people to eat it you know but mm. what they're realizing is people are actually pretty sensitive you know they're they're pretty like people understand uh when they're eating something that's gross and when they're eating something that's actually different. And as you say, like more whole. Yeah, yeah. definitely. So also just like having generally respect for, uh, for the people that are consuming your product. Well, imagine right. that, imagine the capitalist actually wants to give something good to the people. I know. Um, right. And it's like the people now are so cynical and they're so <clears throat> I mean, this was Bud Light, right? This is why Bud Light was such an incredible moment is you had somebody that was so disconnected yeah. from her job. She was so totally fucking clueless um, that she just didn't even think, you know, she didn't even think that anything like what happened could possibly happen um, because she was just totally disconnected. Yeah. Um. So I wanted to ask, I have a few more questions for you. Um, sure. I wanted to ask you a little bit about, uh, in a kind of circuitous way, going back to the carousel, because one of the biggest, um, I guess, slogans maybe of the carousel is, uh, is it the carousel? No, it's Will. I'm getting them mixed up. Yeah, it's, fine, it's fine. One of the biggest slogans of Will, <laughs> we're staying on Will, 
is never apologize, right? Yeah. And so there's this kind of, um, you know, uh, forceful unapologeticness. Um, what's that about? Okay, I definitely have a good answer for that. By the way, that also came from somebody else. That came from a, a actually a, a woman who's involved in the urban sphere, um, who came up with that, and it, everybody loved it. And we were like, "All right, let's go with it." Um, and if I was a hype dad, I would have been like, "No, I don't know, man. My kid says that we should be talking about this other thing," which actually segues me perfectly into this. So uh, the other day, I was on a call with a potential client. He had a, I won't say what it is, but a very scalable product um, in the space that many, many other people are in, right? And he had paid a insane amount of money for a brand book. So a brand book is like one of the main things that we do. And a brand book has your manifesto, your, you know, mission statement, your tagline, your logo, your, like the, your brand worlds, which is just like your brand aesthetic, you know, it's, it's, everything's in there. So the ones we give are like 60, 70 pages. They have a ton of stuff in them. This effing brand book, this guy had he paid an insane amount of money for it. was like four pages long. The brand was trash. They like the actual logo was trash. Mm. The colors were trash. None of it made any sense. He was a based guy, right? He was a guy who, you know, has based ideas, based aesthetics, basically a bodybuilder type. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, I went to a branding agency with an idea for a line that was really funny. It was super based, very unique, right? And it came directly from him. And he wanted to build his idea all around. I can't say any specifics here, but he wanted to build his whole brand around this very simple, funny, like kind of right coded, but not really super right wing idea, right? But it it had the word don't in it, right? So the number one thing the longhouse fucking always says is don't be negative. You can't be negative. You know, like never be negative. So this fucking branding agency convinced him to basically make his really unique good idea look exactly like every one of another thousand products in the space where, you know, it's the same words. It's the same way of talking about it. It was just utter trash. So this guy paid a ton of money to not only not have a good idea, mm. but to have to make his brand look like every other brand. Like your job as a branding person is to make the brand look not like every other brand. You know, like the and but most branding agencies, because you know, they're just these terrible places, are there and they think it's their job to convince this person to be less themselves. You know, it's like, no, it is your job to make them more of themselves, you know? Mm. So that's what I mean by never apologize. I, I say, that's why I say, I say this, our job is to make the founder's vision and their like essence shine through whatever that is. Yeah. You know? So that's why we say never apologize because everybody else is trying to tell you, oh, you need to like, you know, fit yourself into this really narrow box and if anybody comes at you, you need to say, oh, we're so sorry. And I'm like, no, like you don't have to do that. Yeah. You know, and, and that and that's not, as you're saying, that's not good for your brain. You know, if you're a founder out there just lying about what you're doing all day, that's not fucking good. You know, I mean, the best lines in the world are so weird. Like, 
you know, uh, Dos Equis, like I don't always drink beer, but when I do, I, it's Dos Equis. Like, could you imagine trying to get that across a fucking longhouse agency? They'd be like, what do you mean they don't drink beer? We're a beer company. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like, yeah. that's how they act. And it's like, uh, that's why I had to start Will, because I was like, man, they're not going to let me have, they're not going to let me have ideas. Like, they're just not going to let me do it. So I'm going to have to do it myself, basically. I thought maybe it was also perhaps an uh, a nod to cancel culture. So I've, I've interviewed a number yeah. of canceled people yeah. and uh, you know, the number one rule, if you ever get canceled is never apologize. Never apologize. Yeah. So yeah, yeah I guess brands should uh, maybe take that advice as well. <laughs> right. Stop apologizing you guys. Um, great. Um, and Definitely. who, who are your primary, uh, influences whether artistic or intellectual um that's a good question so um i'm my number one writer is charles bukowski he's like my you know true north uh <clears throat> that's when you know you really that's when i like my escape hatch you know you gotta read some bukowski and i'm like fine um uh who else are my influences um trying to think like like do you mean just like artistically or like in life i mean sure i i mean i, I saw you um, uh i saw a photo shoot with curtis yarvin a while back oh and... yeah i mean yarvin is definitely a an influence of course you know i think his whole framework uh is absolutely what i'm a part of i mean the frogs you know definitely the the vitalist frogs for sure i think mm. are, are exactly what i'm following you know i'm following them basically and they've kind of broken the door down for this like vitalist imagery and i'm absolutely like following them for sure um i mean i myself am really more of a um you know i'm i'm like a fucking travel writer son of two artists you know like I, i'm really meant to be kind of a libertine mm. um so you know I, but i'm married i have a wife and you know i i'm trying to be more religious and um you know i i think the tribes are on something i'm not saying i don't like them but um you know i think that uh artistically like i i come in the vein of the gonzo journalist right? yeah i was so gonna say pretty... you remind me a little bit of a like a hunter s thompson type figure yeah. So I actually don't like Hunter very much, but I like oh. what he stood for. <laughs> I like what he's <laughs> no, no, no. You're totally right. Everybody says this. Uh. I, I, I don't really like his like work very much. And I don't really like like who he was very much. Bukowski's like my the like the real version. Sure. Um, but absolutely that lineage of you know, I think it really dates back to Newt Hamsen. I don't know if you've heard of Newt Hamsen, but uh he wrote Hunger, this book in the 1880s. And uh, it's funny because right around the same time of Nietzsche and oh, I'm a massive massive Nietzsche follower. And I was actually a Nietzsche, Nietzsche follower before BAP. Mm, so I, I had read Thus Big Zarathustra. I was, oh, you, you too? Yeah, yeah. yeah Nietzsche was yeah. like a huge intellectual. I mean, it's literally the reason I studied political philosophy in yeah. college. Um, yeah. But anyway. No, so totally. Nietzsche, Nietzsche a, big, a big deal. Um, BAP. We are grateful for him popularizing uh, Nietzsche as he's done. So, as he said, and that's what I always say. It was like hearing him on uh, Red Scare was a little frustrating because it was like, you like they she hadn't read Nietzsche. Yeah, yeah, and they it's read like, <laughs> it's they like, read like the preface I mean, yeah, yeah. to uh, yeah. 
yeah. Birth of Tragedy. Um, yeah, yeah. They're like, right. I started it, and I was like, you yeah. can't really interview. You cannot read Bronze Age mindset with like you can, but it's like you got to understand that that's not. A, I I shouldn't. You're say missing so much context. Exactly, without... you're missing a lot of context. Like that's yeah. not right. Yeah. So. Um, uh, yeah, so Nietzsche, huge. And so Newt, Newt, Hamzen, there's this kind of lineage of writers that are these like, like the real ones. And it's like Newt, Hamzen, Celine, hmm. uh, of course, Bukowski, John Fonte. Um, you know, I mean, I was a big Kerouac day, Kerouac guy back in the day. Um, you know, it's these kind of creative nonfiction writers who write about real life. That's like really my my thing, but I like the right coded ones. You know, I like the ones who didn't say what you were supposed to say. I like the ones who, who aren't these progressive darlings of like, you know, just doing a bunch of drugs and shit, you know? Yeah. So what can people look forward to, uh, with, with carousel and with will coming up? So I've got a, I've got a piece coming out about vibe camp. Mm, oh, that'll be that'll be spicy. <laughs> yeah, 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 very, very spicy. Uh, and so I'm waiting to see if American Mind wants to publish it. I haven't, and then if they don't, I'll just put it up on the on the carousel. Mm. Um, so that'll be funny. I think it'll probably piss off so many people. Uh, well, hopefully, you know, hopefully it does. Um, if you know, yeah, the 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 thing you don't want to happen is nobody cares about it. So we'll see what happens with that. Um, you know, and that's very deep in your world of, of ultra tech and, um, will, I mean, the thing about will, we really have a very minimum amount of work out there uh, because we are only a year old and a lot of the clients we work with, we can't say anything about, Mm. Um, the ones we can say about tend to be in sort of funny industries that, you know, are like, we're happy to show them off, but they're not going to like, people aren't going to immediately know what they are. Um, so, but right now we have a, a quite a lot of work that we're doing and hopefully, uh, we'll have a lot to show soon. It's it. So that's really what I'm, I'm hoping that we can share a lot of like case studies from what we've been working on um shortly which i've i've never been very good at at doing that so we have that uh the carousel podcast is going to keep on coming out uh every week on wednesday or i missed today but it'll be thursday and yeah i mean i really am happiest when i'm writing you know that's I, i'm happiest when i'm writing just long form gonzo journalism that's like what i like to write and so once I get more time again, hopefully I'll be able to just be cranking that stuff out. I mean, my poor paid subscribers, I like, I don't, I don't actually pay well anything, so they can't be mad, but it's like, I feel bad because they're giving me money and they're getting nothing out of it. So, you know, I got to find a way to get back to, to writing when I have a chance. Yeah. Well, great. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing, uh, what, what comes out of will and, uh, what what comes out of, uh, more carousel interviews and essays. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. It's been great. Dude, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. I uh, appreciate it, man.